All right, today's reading is uh, from Mark 10, looking at verse 17. And while today is the second Sunday of Christmas, technically, uh, we are looking a little different this morning. We're not going off the, the lectionary passage this morning. So I will read from Mark 10, starting in verse 17. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these since my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go, sell what you own, and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were perplexed at these words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. They were greatly astounded and said to one another, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, For mortals it is impossible, but not for God. For God all things are possible. Peter began to say to him, Look, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly, I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the good news who will not receive a hundredfold now in this age, houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children, and fields with persecutions, and in the, in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. This is God's word. So in this morning's passage, Jesus addresses three different people or groups of people. A man will refer to as the rich young ruler, his disciple Peter, and his disciples as a whole. So chapter 10, uh, just the preceding verses of this passage, began with a call to discipleship in one of the most fundamental aspects of our life. We talked about our relational call to discipleship. And the purpose of marriage in particular, and how we, regardless of our relationship statuses, are to be reminded that we all need Jesus to be the ultimate in our lives. God has invited us to depend on the only one who can ultimately satisfy our souls, Jesus. Not a spouse, not, not and now in this week's passage, not wealth, not a vocation, no, Jesus. So this week we're looking at wealth, and regardless of our income, our retirement funds, credit scored, or our debt, um, 
Jesus' words in Mark 10 speak to us all. And even more so than monetary wealth, when we talk about vocational wealth, relational wealth, anything we have our hold on to that will not last forever. Anything that we have more than another, that is our wealth, what God has given to us. And so let us not just strictly look at our assets, but anything and everything we hold to. So let's begin, starting in verse 17. First point, Jesus calls each of us to go and sell all we have and to come and follow him. Let's look at verse 17. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal lives? So the king of kings, he's on his way to make his triumphant entry into Jerusalem at this point. He's riding not on a horse, but a donkey, where he will not be honored by his disciples, but instead betrayed, and where he will not hold on to his rights that he's entitled to, but he'll forfeit them, ultimately to bear the punishment of a criminal by dying on a cross. And so it's at this point in the story of Jesus that the rich young ruler approaches him. The man asks, good teacher, what must I do? Uh, James R. Edwards, he's a New Testament scholar who comments on Mark, deals with this question. He addresses the question of the man's question. Uh, and it, he says it reveals his understanding, the rich young ruler's understanding, that he believes our behavior to be the deciding factor of our eternal destiny. So to clarify, when Mark uses the word eternal life, we kind of use this uh, and I think it undersells the gospel message of Jesus, that Jesus died to give us eternal life. It's not just like Jesus died so we can live forever. Um, it's not that simple. Eternal life, later on we know, means eternal life is knowing Christ. It's just a phrase. Uh, it's not literally like you died to live forever, or he died for us to live forever. Uh, it actually is a, a phrase that is representative of simply knowing Christ. That is eternal life, knowing life, knowing life itself, Jesus, knowing our maker. And so when he uses this, uh, the phrase also can be used such as being saved or the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Those are kind of the overlapping terms in the Gospels. Jesus responds to the rich young ruler in verse 18. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Uh, it's important to note here that Jesus is not denying that he is God. He more knows the man's heart, knows the, that the man doesn't realize that he's God. And he's just simply addressing him, you know, you're addressing me as a rabbi. And he's saying, well, if, if I'm just a rabbi, why are you calling me good? Uh, according to Edwards again, Jesus' unexpected counter-question intends to move the man beyond confidence in his moral rectitude to the ultimate purpose of his life, which is to know God. So, uh, parents, if you, if you guys are familiar with this, um, I once had a teenager, uh, and she's, I guess she's still a teenager, but uh, whenever your kids maybe come to you, especially as they're starting to get older and getting crafty in their asks, for things, uh, they may appeal to you. Uh, they'll approach you for something, uh, whether it be going out to do something with friends, or if they, if you'll buy them something, or anything like that. And um, 
what did my teenager often do, which I remember I did this with my parents. Uh, they plead their case, right? They list off the reasons why they should be able to do or get or be able to participate in something. Uh, we try to justify ourselves, sometimes with inflated reasonings or even reasons that are not good at all. I didn't rob a bank today, so, you know, I'm not that bad. Like, hold on. Why is that the, base, why is that the baseline? And so what Jesus is doing here, he's telling the rich young ruler, hold on, purposefully humbling the man by raising the man's bar or standard of goodness. And then Jesus goes on in verse 19. He says, you know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And so the rich young ruler responds because he knows this. He's grown up in a Jewish household. He said to him, teacher, I've kept all these since I was young. Notice that he dropped the word good of calling him good teacher. He's now appealing to him the way Jesus encouraged him to. And then in verse 21, Jesus responds, looking at him, loved him, and said, You lack one thing. Go sell what you own and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. So it's important for us, first of all, to notice that Jesus has genuine love for this man. Just those two little words thrown in there. Or three little words. Felt genuine love. Jesus feels that love for him. Our God genuinely loves and sympathizes with us. He's able to see this man where he is, what perhaps he is holding on to, or perhaps what is holding on to him. And he loves him despite that. He sees what the rich young ruler is trying to do. He sees how he's attempting to justify himself. And God sees and intimately knows each of us just as we do the same before him as well. But God lovingly says, that's not enough. I hear you, but that's not enough. Jesus tells the rich young ruler, there's still one thing you haven't done. Uh, or, yeah, like ours this morning said, you lack one thing. He tells them to go sell everything. Give the money to those in need and then come follow him. But why? It's not inherently bad to be wealthy, right? I mean, there's a lot of people in the story of redemption that have quite a bit of wealth. So why is Jesus demanding this of a man of seemingly good character? Tim Keller writes, it's not that all individual rich people are bad, nor are individual poor people good, even though... The Beatitude said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus did not make such a blank, blanket assertion, nor, on the other hand, was he saying, just be careful, don't fall into greed and be generous from time to time. No, Jesus was saying that there is something radically wrong with all of us, but money somehow has particular power to blind us to it. In fact, it has so much power to deceive us of our true spiritual state, that we need a gracious, miraculous intervention from God to see it. The Apostle Paul, in writing to one of his pastoral apprentices, warned of money's power to Timothy. He said, for the love of money 
Not money, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. You know, you wonder why, why is it so uncomfortable for us to talk about our wealth, our monetary wealth in churches, and perhaps that's an indicator of its power on us. Why is it uncomfortable to talk about it with our significant others or family or, you know, I know when my parents were teaching me how to use money, it, I didn't like them getting their hands in my money. Why? Perhaps I was holding on too tightly. Perhaps they were holding on, or money was holding too tightly on me. But each of us can relate with this man to one degree or another. Whether we live in a custom home on a nice property or we barely make it rent to rent, or month to month to pay our rent, the reality is that living at this point in human history and where we live at, we are monetarily wealthy, the majority of us, in a global perspective. But it's not the money itself that's separating this man from God, it's what the money represents to this man. It's the power he feels with what he has. It's the comfort he enjoys living with this wealth. It's the self-righteousness he's accrued alongside his accomplishments. Jesus says, despite following the law to a T, he still lacks one thing. One thing. Tim Keller continued, of course, he was missing something. Because anyone who counts on what they are doing to get eternal life will find that in spite of everything they've accomplished, there's an emptiness, an insecurity, a doubt. Something is bound to be missing. And this, this is the economy of God's kingdom. Regardless of how much wealth or how many accomplishments we have or how, um, man, we finally get that, what we've been aspiring to, whether it be a, a vocation, a degree, a relationship, whatever it may be, um, it's, it's always uh, not enough to fulfill the soul if that's what we've been looking to fulfill our soul. In the Beatitudes, that's why Jesus said, God blesses those who are poor. And I love the NLT's take on this. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. It's not simply a monetary poverty. It is a soul poverty. It is a recognizing that regardless of how much I have or don't have, how much monetary wealth, relational wealth, vocational wealth, accomplishment wealth, whatever that may be that I've, the accolades I have or don't have, I'm aspiring to or will never reach, they will never completely satisfy. In fact, the only way we can really truly find enjoyment and, content and contentment in them is in realizing and owning that, hey, this is never going to be that. This is never going to be the ultimate. It's merely a temporary, perhaps lifelong, but temporary in the scheme of eternity and realize that God is our ultimate need. These are but shadows of the transcendent figure of God. Do you realize your need for him? Is there something you're looking to instead of Jesus to satisfy your needs or build your self-worth? 
Monetary poverty is not the goal, but an awareness of our spiritual poverty is in this. And perhaps Jesus, in interacting with the rich young ruler, realized how much this man was holding on to his monetary wealth, or how much it was holding on to him. But again, take, take that back. Perhaps it's not monetary wealth that you're holding on to. Perhaps it's career wealth. Perhaps it's relational wealth. Perhaps it's some sort of degree or accomplishment. And how do we know if it's us holding on too tight or if they're hold, it's holding on to us and we don't even realize it? This is what Jesus is challenging here. Jesus calls each of us to go and sell all we have to come and follow him. However, we see that we are incapable of doing so on our own. You look at verse 22. How does the rich young ruler respond? He says, when he heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus looks around and says to his disciples how hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus has turned now to speaking to the disciples who seem to have overheard this conversation. This shows that our wealth and possessions can be a barrier between us and God. And again, not simply wealth and possess physical possessions, but perhaps our careers that we're holding on to, perhaps our retirement, perhaps our relationships, perhaps something, our affiliations. Perhaps those get in the way of spiritual wealth in Christ. The disciples, it says, according to Mark, were perplexed. They're stunned at these words. In particular, you know, these people were expecting a king to come in and that he's going to be, you know, everything's going to be all good. Lavished in wealth. And so for their leader, that they've, you know, given up everything to follow, they're like, wait, hold on, this isn't going to, like, turn out good? We're not, like, investing in early on the, on the, uh, the company and our stock portfolio is going to explode? No, that's not... They're, they're, it's kind of clicking a little bit here, like, wait, maybe this isn't going to turn out the way we thought, maybe. Verse 25, Mark says it's easier, or, sorry, verse 24, Mark continues with them. Yeah, they're perplexed, but Jesus says to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom. Now, that seems extreme. Jesus is saying that it's all but impossible for people to enter God's kingdom if they don't give up everything and stand on God alone. Now James R. Edwards, again, he writes, anything that causes disciples to forget their poverty and childlikeness before God and that prevents them from following Jesus Christ, this too is a camel before the eye of a needle. I'm going to read that again. That's, that's loaded. Anything that causes disciples to forget their poverty and childlikeness before God and that prevents them from following Jesus, this too is a camel before the eye of needle. 
See, Edwards is encouraging us to not simply see this as just Jesus talking to wealthy people who have a lot of money. Now, it's people who are holding on to anything and everything for their self-worth, for their satisfaction, for their gratification, to the point where they've made a good thing the ultimate thing. They've turned creation, they've put it in the place of creator. In verse 26, Mark continues, They were greatly astounded and said to one another, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, For mortals it is impossible, but for God all things are possible. Now Peter steps up, begins to say to him, Look, we've left everything to follow you. Isn't it obvious? We did that. Peter's telling Jesus, we, we literally gave up our lives to follow you. Our careers, perhaps some relationships, that this following of Jesus is rebellious or foreign or, or not respectable, and so it disassociates us from them. Jesus says, truly I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brother or sister or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the good news who will not receive a hundredfold now in this age. Houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children and fields with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But here's where Jesus reminds Peter and the other disciples to be humble. Mark concludes, Jesus says, but many who are the greatest now will be least important then. And those who seem least important now will be the greatest then. Many who have the greatest following on social media or most influential power in our culture and world, they will be silenced. Their influence is momentary at best. But no, it's those who are poor in spirit who do countless things day in and day out that many people will never know. Those are the people who will be the greatest in the kingdom. Jesus says, yes, you did that, Peter, but be careful not to stand on that. Be careful not to let that be who you are. Don't let your wealth be who you are. Don't let your monetary wealth, don't let your career accomplishments, don't let your relationships, don't let your... uh, aspirations, anything like that, define who you are. No, I've defined who you are. You're my follower. The problem with the rich young ruler is that's how we know him, right? The rich young ruler. We don't know him as a follower of Jesus. We know him as the rich young ruler. That is his name to us. That resounds nearly two millennia later for us in the church. So what defines you? What are you living into? Are you being defined by your followership of Jesus? Is that who you are? Are you living out of that? Or are you living out of some other temporary earthly identities? And yes, even... being a spouse. It is temporary, yes? 
it is one of the most uh, lifelong in a lot of ways, and one way that is a, a tremendous shadow for us, but it's still momentary in the timeline of eternity. It's meant to be a, a temporary gift that points us to the eternal covenant. And in that wealth of love and richness, of joy and sorrow, love and hurt, all these different things that happen in those years, maybe decades, uh, they're meant to be a shadow for us of our relationship with Christ as his church, as his ultimate bride. But perhaps we experience that in our careers, in our friendships, things of that sort. Those, those joys are not the problem. Having joy in our wealth, our accomplishments, whatever that may be, is not in and of itself the problem. It's just when they become, they turn from good to the ultimate. When that is what we're living for, and that's what we're living in light of. You're waking up in the morning and not saying, I'm a Jesus follower, I'm saying I'm a rich young ruler. I'm a wife, I'm a mom, I'm a husband, I'm a dad, I'm, a, I'm an employer, I'm an employee, I'm a student. I'm my own. That's not who we are if we're in Christ now. We are not our own. We're followers of Jesus. Our accolades and our wealth in whatever category of life no longer define who we are. Are you the rich young ruler? Is it difficult for you to give? And not simply give to give, but to give sacrificially where it forces you to make sacrifice to change your life. You know, we give, yes, monetarily, but in all of life, be in light of, in following of Jesus, the giver of all. He gave everything. So anything we're called to do, our God did it before, and way more than we'll ever be able to do it. And so, just as he gave everything, we're called to follow in that, be willing to give everything. Often, we hold on to our stuff with closed hands. In a world where we want to protect our stuff, protect our lives, protect our families, protect whatever we've achieved or obtained. But in life with God, we're called to hold our stuff with open hands. Our, ours is a life of stewardship. And our God is a God who gives and he takes away. But regardless, we say, blessed be the name of the Lord in all seasons of life. And so, yeah, if you've ever had kids, you know they're in your house for some time, but then God moves them on at some point when they potentially make their own family. Or maybe you've accrued a lot of wealth, and then maybe your portfolio got messed up, or you invested improperly, or you weren't good with your wealth. Whatever. Or something happened. Stock market happened. Or you've had loved ones, and then... Life happens. Um, our stuff, anything like that. Or our dreams. This is my aspiration, but then God turns it. The problem becomes when we hold things like this. Where we think, man, I've got to fight for this. I've got to hold on to this. It shows a lot of doubt in our God. That we can trust him. You know, I used this analogy the other night that when I was a kid, 
I remember just late night drive homes from like family parties and stuff. It could be 2 a.m. I never once, sitting in the backseat of the car, doubted that my dad was going to get us home. I trusted him. I could fall asleep. I think there's a point where I can't fall asleep where there's like this, oh no, I can't let someone else have that control that they're going to get me where we need to go. I think that's where Jesus is calling the rich young ruler here. But the reason why he tells him to give it all away is because he knows how much, how tightly he's holding on to this wealth, what he has been given, and arguably how much that is holding on to him. So are you the rich young ruler? Are you that person holding on to something and perhaps it's holding on to you? You're afraid if it's not, you know, if it gets to the point where, man, if if I were to lose this, if God were to take this away tomorrow, if it were gone like that, my life, what would my life be? That might show, be an indicator that we've turned a good thing, a gift that we're to steward, into a great thing. We've turned a gift into a God. We've turned a good thing into a great thing. Or are you Peter and the disciples? Do you feel more confident in your faith and relationship with God simply because you have seemingly done it all? You attend church or Bible study and tithe and all these different things and serve. Have you built your wealth, not necessarily monetarily or accomplishment-wise, if you will, but through boasting in your own sacrifice and the life you've already made for Jesus? Because it's just as easy of us, uh, as easy for us. Maybe not just as, because Jesus indicated the camel into the needle illustration. But I wouldn't say it's that much easier. Um, but for us who are in Christ, to start building our our life of following Jesus, our place before Him, building this resume before God, and then when life happens, we're like, God, I've done all this for you. What happened? Why did this go south? That, again, is another indicator that we're living in light of the resume we've built, not the resume Christ has built. So whether you're the rich young ruler who lived a moral life, loving, but finds hope in your wealth and accomplishments or whatever, or you're like Peter and the disciples who, have only, who only miss church when you're on vacation, and you attend Bible studies and tithe and give to the poor, we are all still in spiritual poverty. It's just, the question is, do we know it? We're incapable of selling all we have and following Jesus on our own. So, if we're called to do this, but we can't do this, who can? Who actually is spiritually rich? And that's where Jesus is setting up often in the Gospels. He is the true rich young ruler. If you turn to Philippians 2, Jesus is the one who did this. Philippians 2, starting in verse 5, Paul encourages the believers in Philippi, let the same mind be in you that was in Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but he emptied himself taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. Though he was wealthy in every way, far more than we ever will, 
he emptied his bank account. And being found in human forms, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is the true rich young ruler, who though he infinitely was wealthy, chose to not be regarded as such, but rather to empty himself and take on our spiritual poverty, that we might experience the infinite riches of knowing him. Jesus is better than any wealth we're holding on to or that we're aspiring to. Dollars, careers, degrees, properties, affiliations, relationships, lineage, whatever that may be, Jesus is better than that. Those things can be good, but they cannot be our God. Jesus is better than that. And Jesus is better than our sacrifices even still. So if Jesus is our true rich young ruler, giving is no longer an obligation, but an opportunity. No longer a burden, but a joy. And living life open-handed instead of clenching on to what God's given us in this life to steward. It's freeing. It's freeing. We clench on in light of our freedom, saying, no, this is my choice to hold on. But in, in actuality, in doing that, it's as if that is gripping us. That when we're afraid to give it up, we know that it's got us. Now, living this way, knowing that Jesus has done this far more than we ever can, it's freeing, it's empowering, knowing that he stood in our place. That's why we're not the leader of Jesus. We're his followers. And we can follow in light of that. We can trust our God. He's good. He's faithful. He's given us more riches than we can ever store on this earth in knowing him alone. So let's live open-handedly. Let's live joyfully. Let's live sacrificially. Those things don't have to control us anymore. Let's pray. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for giving us, some of us, years, decades of just time in this life, learning from our leader, from our rabbi, Jesus. And we read these stories of his life and his teachings, sometimes countless times in our lifetime. And Spirit, you continue to teach and shape and challenge us, and so we, we thank you for that. We, we, we pray that as we age, we don't grow more prideful, but we grow more humble, realizing our poverty apart from you, Jesus. We thank you for giving us the riches of grace in you, Christ and ultimately in knowing you, our maker. 
And while we've discussed a lot of head things, a lot of things we can know for a fact, we know that you've called us to love you with not just our mind, but our hearts and our bodies. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that these things that you've shown us in our head, would these translate into our affections and our attention and our actions. As we attend to these in our mind, may these lead to new affections, new perspectives, and new ways of living, not gripping on to what you've given us in this season of life, but willing, being willing to, sta to stand before you or kneel before you and bend a knee and say, Jesus, what do you want from me? What do you want me to do with this? How do you want me to handle this? And help us trust you. Help us see that you're good. Remind us that you've never let us down ultimately. While we don't always get it, help us know that you've never left us in the dark. That you are faithful, that you know our hearts. You love us like you love the rich young ruler. We thank you. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.